you're listening to sermon audio from Ankeny Free Church in Ankeny, Iowa, a community in Christ on a mission to reach our community for Christ. To learn more, head over to ankenyfree.church. Well, if you are new, or, or you just really haven't been paying attention, we have been in the book of Genesis for quite some time. And today we're going to be in Genesis 46. It's a longer passage. We're going to read it all. But we see that Joseph, after several decades, gets reunited with his father, his father who thought he was gone. And a story that some of you know, my grandpa served in World War II. He was a mechanic for airplanes, and so he had his airplane and his pilot make sure that they were ready and the pilot would go off and do the sorties and, and come back. But one time he went off on a mission and the pilot never came back. And so he gets a new plane and a new pilot. And I don't know if you're currently watching something about World War II or reading a book, but I hate to spoil it, but we win in the end. And things go pretty well. He gets, comes back home, gets married has a couple kids, one of which is my mom. My grandpa, though, has a very interesting name. His name is Cheryl Zyden Nutt. And he's kind of a jokester, so he would always answer the phone, the Nut House. Of which, when my mom met my dad, I think she was incredibly eager to take his last name. But nonetheless, he goes through life and About 50 years after the war, in the 90s, he takes one of those tours that you go back over to England and France to see all the battle sites and the places where he served. And as he gets off the bus and is standing around, you know, this big old name tag, he hears someone yelling at him, Cheryl Nutt? Cheryl Nutt? It was his pilot, the pilot he thought that had died. He had been shot down, but he landed safely and was there confined in a German prisoner of war camp until the end of the war. Fifty years. Fifty years. He thought he was gone. And yet, he wasn't. They obviously talked a whole lot about everything that had happened. If you can just imagine the excitement that that would have, it's nothing compared to Maybe losing a child, thinking they were dead. And yet now, now hearing that they are alive, and in this chapter, being able to see them face to face. The book of Genesis divides into two parts. We see in the first part the four great events. Creation, fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. In the second part, we see the four great men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now the last 30% of the book is about Joseph. And we see Joseph as a younger man, kind of in an elevated position, and he goes down, down into the pit because of his brother's jealousy, down into slavery, down even into being falsely accused, down into the prison being alone and forgotten, only to be lifted up, 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 to be this viceroy, second in charge of all the land of Egypt, delivering them from a worldwide famine. 
And yet that isn't the greater miracle. The greater miracle is the plan of God and the reunion here of this family. Last week, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. And they went and they told their father. And now we see the father making his trip back to Egypt. This is a longer passage. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the move to Egypt in three different parts. I'm going to read each part and then make a few comments. And then at the end, we're going to see how this passage is fulfilling these promises, not only in the book of Genesis, but in the entire Bible. And then at the end, we're going to ask ourselves the question, so what? What does this mean then for us here today? And we are going to see clearly that our Lord, even though sometimes it, it looks like a long time, even though, and at least in our minds, it doesn't happen overnight, God is faithful to fulfill his promises. He's, he's faithful to do what he says he's going to do. And so, if you have a Bible, or if you have a, something on your phone, you can turn with me. Genesis chapter 46, we're going to start here. In verses 1 through 7. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. He said, Here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, and their little ones, their wives, and their wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons, his sons' sons with him, his daughters, and his sons' daughters, and all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Let us pray. God, we ask that you would speak to us in this moment, that we would be once again confronted, Lord, by your word, whether for renewal or conviction. I pray that our eyes would be open to the things you desire us for us to see. And I pray that we would hear uh, not my ramblings, but that we would hear your word. And so, Lord, I ask that you would speak through me or in spite of me. But we desire to be transformed into the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, the reunion begins. The wagons from Egypt have come, the announcement has been made, and they're about to set off. But before they set off, Jacob worships. He offers sacrifices at Beersheba. We're reminded this is the same place that his father did the same thing, which once again resulted in a revelation from God and a renewal of the promise made to Abraham, which is what happens here in verse 2. Notice here, this promise, uh, this command to not be afraid is, is built on, on four conditions that he wants Jacob to understand. He wants him to understand that, first of all, 
that God is a God who fulfills his promises. For there I will make you into a great nation. The promise given to Abraham and the promise again given to Isaac is renewed here before Jacob. Not only that, God gives the promise of his presence. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. God isn't sending Jacob on his own. He's going with him. The very presence of God is journeying now down to Egypt. And not only is he going to go down to Egypt, but he's going to fulfill his promise to bring him back up again. A promise particularly to Jacob about where he will be buried, but also we look back at Genesis chapter 15, knowing that the evil of the land is rising and there'll be a time where Israel leaves and then returns to the promised land. And then finally this rather short promise, but one that I think Jacob is most concerned about, that he'll get to see his son before he dies. And that's what Israel said, and that's what God says to Israel. That it'll be Joseph that is with you when you die. Now we didn't need this, but in all of this, the, the excitement of this renewal and the the speculation as to the promises of God, we once again see that God is faithful. And if we missed it in the narrative, God makes it explicit not only to Jacob but to us that he is a God who fulfills his promises. Our second section is a genealogy. So follow with me. Verse 8. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and, his, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan, and the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul, the sons of Ishkar, Tola, Puva, Yob, Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, Jalel. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore unto Jacob, and Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Hagi, Shuni, Ezbron, Eri, Erodi, and Ereli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, uh, Bariah, Sarah, their sister. The sons of Bariah, Heber, and Machael. The sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asnath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Bercher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppim, Huppim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan, Hushim. The sons of Naphtali, Jehaz, Guni, Jezer, and Shalim. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to, his, to, gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. 
all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not included Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. And all the persons in the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Whew. That's a lot. <laughs> you know, I think, though, when we see a genealogy in the book of Genesis, it's a little bit like playing Super Mario Brothers. I don't know if you've ever played Super Mario Brothers, but it's not a game where you can save it. But there are places, these stages, where you complete a stage and you're like, oh, we've made progress. And, and that's where we're at here, is we're reminded that the, the purposes and the plan of God set back from the very beginning in Genesis 3, that there would be this seed that would crush the serpent's head, that they are coming to fruition. Now, a few things we should note, that the the daughters there of Laban had twice as many children as their servants. We notice that the number is 70, a number that really communicates this wholeness and completeness of this group coming in, that, that everyone has made it down to Egypt. And maybe you notice too, Benjamin, right? The boy, as he's called, the, this, this kid as the brothers refer to him. Well, he's got 10 sons, so I don't, you can kind of do a little math if you want on what's going down there, but uh, he's maybe a bit older than we're led to believe um, by how his brothers treat him tenderly. And we see all of this. We see all of this. We see the faithfulness and the goodness of God. And then we see finally this reunion. I mean, we have God's presence, we see God's people, and now we see here at the very end this, this God is going to provide for them. Verse 28, he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock. They have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. The reunion happens. It's been over 20 years a father thinking his son has passed away. And there he is, rolling up on the wagons with Judah at the head, which is an interesting note. And then Joseph comes charging in on his chariot and probably a large entourage. And, and we see now, not the young boy, but this 
magisterial liveried viceroy of Egypt, clothed in the white linen of aristocracy, now coming to meet his dad. And they just fall on each other, and they just weep, and they cry. 20 years, 20 plus years of emotion, of longing, of questioning for, for Jacob, wondering, not wondering, knowing that his son was dead, only now to find him alive. And for Israel, wondering, how's my dad doing? They are brought to this land called Goshen. It's mentioned several times here in this passage. Goshen is a, a significant detail. They were brought into this land, and we'll talk about this next week, but Goshen is going to be this place of protection. You, you see, Jacob is actually quite wealthy. And so in the land of Canaan, with all these different uh, tribal kind of factions, these many nations, they are a soft target. If it weren't for the providence of God, they would have been plundered years ago. And yet now, even though their wealth was a detriment in the land of Canaan, um, their wealth will actually be an asset here in the land of Egypt. They get to go to an area that is flourishing. There's pasture land and opportunity for their livestock to graze. They're going into the land of Egypt, so they are thoroughly protected from outside forces, for Egypt is the world's superpower. No one's going to assault or assail them there. And they are far from the capital city. And we can tell that this is somewhat of an issue as we listen to Joseph talk about his plan and how he's going to interact with Pharaoh. You see, for Egypt, this is a win as well. They're wealthy and they bring livestock. They're, they're not going to have to be put on the payroll of Egypt, especially in a time where resources are scarce and, and food is difficult to find. Um, you're not going to have uh, Joseph trying to get positions within the Egyptian government for his family. He's acknowledging that, hey, we're, we're kind of an abomination to you guys. We're going to stay up here in the north, tend to, our, tend to our sheep, and let you guys govern, which then kind of subdues any sort of conspiracy threat that Pharaoh may be thinking might happen through Joseph and then maybe a few brothers that are also there in the royal household. No, indeed, we see that, that this is God's protection. Now, even though the family is now safe in Egypt, we see that this passage is just bursting with promises fulfilled. Promises fulfilled. We see the very hand of God uh, moving in this passage. Let's just start to, to walk up and see how God is working. They are in the Goshen, they're in the land of Goshen. And several times they've talked about going into Egypt. Into Egypt. And just like Noah and his family went into the ark to receive protection during tumultuous time, so too they are going down into Egypt which reminds us of our own safety and security. Now, our safety and security is not found in a boat. It's not found in a place. But it's found in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. The number one way that Paul talks about being a Christian is someone that is in Christ. 
that we are united with the Lord Jesus. Our safety and our security, our provision and our protection is found in Jesus Christ, that we were united with Him. And because of His death and resurrection, He enables us to, to become united with Him in order that we might have forgiveness of sins and everlasting life for all who trust in Him. We trust in Him. We are with Him. We are with Him, with Him, with Him. We see the promises of God through the genealogy that this isn't the last time we see a list of people. Not only is this God's faithfulness to a family broadly or to individuals within that more specifically, but we see God's providential hand here in moving forward that there is this one we're to hope in, this seed that will be of Eve. This now coming from Abraham will be in this nation. Then ultimately to David, we'll see that there is this king that we are to look forward to. And there is this Messiah that ultimately comes, the Lord Jesus, that is going to be our rescue from the evil one. We see the fulfillment then of God's promises made back in Genesis chapter 12, that there would be this blessing that would go throughout the entire world. The Apostle Paul gives us some help in understanding these things. In Galatians chapter 3, he shows how these things point not only to Jesus, but to us. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16, he says this, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ that we see the fulfillment of God ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. The, the long waiting has now resulted in great joy and hope for us. The Apostle Paul lets us know about this hope. If we go up to chapter 3, starting in verse 7, he says this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations are blessed. Verse 9, So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. These promises are not just idle promises then to Jacob, but ultimately even to us through Jesus that we enjoy the blessings that Jesus has given to all the world. And then lastly, we go back up to the very beginning and God's specific promise to Jacob. Where he says, don't be afraid. Of course, God's going to fulfill his promises and there's some specific things he's going to do there with Jacob. But he does say this, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. And once again, we see that that God is with us in Christ. We're told from the very beginning in Matthew 1.23, and his name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. The, the reward, <laughs> uh, more than forgiveness, more than everlasting life, is we get the Lord. And through him, we receive these blessings. These promises are fulfilled. Well, you might be wondering, this is very interesting, but so what? <laughs> that's, 
That's all nice kind of theology and maybe an interesting history lesson. This passage has a lot of good feels, right? Oh, it's just heartwarming. And I think that that should be for us as well. That this passage should give us hope. We should have hope. Hope even in a dark time. Hope even when there, there seems like there is despair. Hope even when we've been hoping for a long period of time. And there's two areas where I see hope. Hope for this world and hope for ourselves. Hope for this world and then hope ultimately for us. I don't know if any of you guys have watched the news or been on the internet. It's a mess out there. There's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Oh, boy. It's easy to just despair. It's hard to tear ourselves away, like watching a train wreck. And then there's the personal things that you have going on. Maybe you're sitting in darkness right now. Wondering, is there a special someone for you? Maybe your marriage is a, is a desperate struggle. Maybe your body is racked with illness. Your finances are in disarray. You're wondering, do you have two nickels even to rub together? You're wondering about the future. And you just look around and you're just like, well, God, it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of hope. One of the things that's interesting about not only the book of Genesis, but the entire Bible. Man, doesn't it always seem like the very plan of God is just just hanging on by a thread? That the wheels are about to come off at any moment? I mean, from the very beginning, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. They have two sons. One kills one and then is kicked out of the garden. You're just like, oh... Is this thing over before it begins? You go along. Evil rises in the world. And God's like, I'm done. But I'll, you know, I'll save this family of eight. And Noah's preserved in the ark. And you're just like, oof. This, you're really scaling it back. Is this going to actually happen? We go through there with Abraham. You're going to be a mighty nation. Guess what? You're going to be very, very old along with Sarah before you have this one child. One child. And then that one child, he has two children. And, and maybe you feel like you're getting some momentum here with Israel. Not the kind of momentum you want with four different women, but at least we're starting to get some people going. But man, this family feels like it's going to tear itself apart. And then maybe one of the sons is going to rise to power and squash him. Or maybe they'll just be obliterated by the famine. And yet the plan of God moves on. The plan of God endures. We see that, that we have hope in this world in the New Testament. Jesus comes in and we're sitting there, man, it's, he's the one, he's the one, but his followers, right? Jesus says, I'm going to die. I'm going to die, I'm going to die, and I'll come back. And they just miss it. Failure, failure, failure. In fact, it's so bad, you have places like Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 16, the very end of the book of Mark. Jesus has died and rose again. The angel is sitting there at the tomb. The women come up. The angel says, he is not here. He is risen. Go tell the disciples and Peter. And what do they do? They run. They're afraid and they tell no one. At least that's how the book of Mark ends. You're just like, wait, that's the end? That's it? 
You don't tell anyone? We know from the other Gospels that they did, but could you imagine? The message of the Gospel would have been a non-starter had the women's like, we're not seeing anything. We see it in the Apostle Paul too, don't we? He goes around and he's planting these churches and you feel like things would go great, right? Immediately there's opposition. Immediately there's persecution. Immediately there's false teachers. Immediately you have people that, that say they're aligned with Jesus and then they're going off every which away. In fact, it's so bad that when we get to 2 Timothy, which is probably the last letter Paul wrote before he died, He's writing to Timothy and he's like, I hope you hang on because a lot of people haven't. There's been those that have walked away, those that have opposed us. And then by the time you get to the last chapter of 2 Timothy, he just has this list of people that were once with him but now aren't. And you're left at the end going, is this really going to happen? Is God really going to be faithful to his promises? And yet here we are. 2,000 years later, we are in a land that has been terraformed from prairie grassland to the most fruitful farmland that this world has to offer. We are now talking in a language that didn't exist at the time of Christ. And last week, we had a little thing we call Vacation Bible School, our kids' summer program. And it's fun, and we gather together for the church, and our kids learn some things. But we also wanted to tell them about Jesus, so that they can trust in Jesus. And that was Wednesday, and the elders were praying, and I was praying, Lori, our children's director, has this whole thing organized and, and J.D. was going to be the one presenting the message of the gospel. And so I came in because I, I, I was kind of filled with excitement. And man, he gets to talking and the kids are just chattering and they're doing stuff with salt and little things on their hands and everybody's kind of there's this low murmur no one's listening and there's kind of sounds going on all around and I am just like is this there is no way this is going to happen there is no way I mean sure you know the gospel can go across mountain and ocean but the murmur of little kids it's too much it's too much for the Lord and so I'm like he's coming to it and then all of a sudden it quiets. And the kids focus in. And they hear about God's great love for them. About the forgiveness that he offers. About everlasting life through Jesus. And a prayer and an opportunity to respond to that message. I, I didn't get the final number. I was just going off of the, the one I had I believe there were 55 kids that indicated that they, they put their trust in Jesus. They're trusting in the Lord. You know, we pray for people to, to know Jesus. And the reason we do that is because we know that he is our only hope in this world. We, we know that, that he is our only rescue 
in, in the storms that we see in our lives. We know that it's only in Christ that there is real and enduring hope. And that's why you pray. You pray for your one. We, were, we prayed for one. Uh, my daughter brought a friend of hers. And she was one of those that responded. And afterwards I could see the, there's joy in her eyes and a smile on her face and a hope that it seems like, wow, this wasn't there before. There is a hope in this world. Even though it looks dark and bleak. And even though it takes time. But God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Secondly, he's faithful to fulfill his promises in our lives. Maybe you feel like, well, that's great. It's going on for everybody else. But what about, what about me? Maybe, maybe you're not doing so great. Maybe you feel like you're messed up. Maybe you're even someone that's trusted in Christ and feels that way. You know, the, the story of Joseph helps us there too. We've seen the, the redemption of Judah and even the transformation here now of Israel. We've seen God's goodness, especially over time. And we're reminded of Philippians 1.6 which says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That once again, Jesus wasn't just our initial hope, but he's our ongoing hope. Jesus is the hope that we have for real transformation and security and then ultimately deliverance from this age into the age to come. This passage, some random chapter it seems in Genesis, is just filled with Jesus pointing us, even though it talks of a day gone by, pointing us once again to a God who fulfills His promises. As the worship team comes forward, we're going to have a time of prayer. Maybe God has done something in your life. Maybe you're not sure what happens when you die. If you'll if you're united with Jesus and will be with Him for all eternity, maybe you're struggling and just wanting to see the light and all you see is darkness. You, you want to see God's hand move. You know, one of the things that I think that we have here in the book of Joseph is not only is this indeed the line of salvation, but it also gives us a detailed snapshot of the providence of God, a snapshot that we often don't get to see in our own lives. Maybe some of us never. We get to see the full-orbed movement of the Lord. And that should be encouraging because the same God here in the book of Joseph is the same God that's in your life as well. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness over time. And not that you're just doing good things for us, O oh Lord, but that you're with us. You don't have to be afraid because we've God with us in Christ. Lord, and I ask that we would continue to be a beacon of that hope, of that enduring hope, of that hope that maybe with earthly eyes only looks like a little thread that's about to snap. 
And yet, the concrete pillars of this world have crumbled. The gospel endures and flourishes. And I pray that that our church here in, in this neighborhood would be a beacon of light and hope to our neighborhood, our city, our state, our country, and our world. And I pray too, Lord, that the hope that we pray for other people we would take on ourselves. That you are the God that works long in our lives. That the work you began, you will bring it to completion. That that we, O Lord, can have confidence in you time and time again when we feel like failures, when we feel abandoned, when we feel worthless. We have you when we trust in you. Lord, I pray that you you would speak in our hearts here, that you be with us here when we go out, that you would do a work that makes us more and more like your son in whose name we pray. Amen. We pray you are blessed and encouraged by this week's message, and we invite you to join us every Sunday, in person or online, for morning worship. Have questions about what it means to know and follow Jesus? Simply email Todd at ankenyfree.church. Thanks for listening.